today we're going to talk about some more difficult teachings of Jesus. And in particular, we're going to talk about gender and sexuality. Um, everybody doesn't know what that means and they're waiting in anticipation. I don't either. I feel like I'm jumping off of a cliff here. So I'm going to make a few disclaimers. Okay. So this is kind of where we're at in the series, but I know that this is a, sens- uh, a sensitive topic and is something that is quite, um, I think, relevant, right, for our times. And I know that there may be some younger folks with us as well, but I think that it's still important to talk about it because obviously middle schoolers and elementary schoolers are dealing with issues of gender and sexuality in their school with their classmates. You know, they have, um, uh, you know, um, friends and classmates that are, um, you know, transitioning into different gender roles using different pronouns. And I think that the church should be a place that we talk about that as well. And that we can try to seek some direction on this uh, to seek, okay, we know generally what the worldview of the world around us tries to help us adopt. And we need to understand in what way should we adopt that and what way should we not. So I hope that this can serve as perhaps a conversation starter for many of our friends and families and coworkers and households. Um, but I do want to begin with some disclaimers, and that is that this is a subject matter that's very near and dear to me and my heart and my family, uh, as I know it is uh, with many of you. And so in today's world, in today's culture, in America, if someone does not personally identify with the LGBTQIA plus 2S movement, um, then someone that you know does. I will shorten that current acronym, which is in vogue with the generic LGBTQ, just because I probably can say it a little easier. But there are many letters and acronyms that represent this community and more and more being added all the time. But we're only one degree of separation from this, right? You guys are familiar with the theory of six degrees of separation, right? Posited in the mid 20th century. We're only about six degrees of separation socially from anyone in the world. Uh, Some argue that that degree of separation is continually getting closer and closer and smaller and smaller as the world gets smaller and the world gets more globalized through technology. But I believe that in our context, we're probably only one degree of separation. Either we personally identify with this community or we have a friend or loved one or someone near to us that does. And so today... The subject of gender and sexuality affects every single one of us. And guess what? The Bible actually has a lot to say about it. And it might not say exactly what you think it does. I might not say exactly what you think I'm going to say. Ooh, everyone's tantalized now. Is he affirming? Is he not? Where is he going? I want to help us understand how God defines gender and sexuality. And to take a look at what Jesus taught about it and then end by helping to make a few practical suggestions and implementations on what the scriptural worldview would mean in our everyday lives. So let's begin by talking about something called creative intent. Where in the Bible do you think we would go to see a concept about creative intent? That's right, the creation story of Genesis. Oh, and it's on the screen. Good job looking up there. These are just for your reference, so you can feel free to write these down. The creation story, classically, uh, you know, seen as Genesis 1 and 2, 
We won't read those two chapters, but we have uh, in the recent past, last year we did a whole series through Genesis. I would encourage you to go back through that um, or take a look if you weren't here for that. But as we think about creation, the Bible starts off its grand narrative, its grand meta narrative in the first two pages of the Bible about this idea of creation, about this idea of a creator God. And so we'll pick up in verse 27. This is also commonly known as the seven days of creation in chapter one. And then on the sixth day in 27, he says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And then jump down to chapter two as the story continues in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused, or the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I'm not gonna go into a whole lot of the context and cultural background here. Again, you can find that and some of the teaching that I've done elsewhere. But suffice it to say, Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, is highly poetic ancient Near Eastern literature. And so we see this creative God, this creator God being depicted as a God that created everything. And then he created something special. What's the crowning jewel of God's creation? Humans right? Why are they special? What does the writer tell us about, or what window is given to indicate that they were special? They are the only thing that is created that also is invited to create. They become co-creators with God, and this is the symbolism of Adam naming the animals, giving meaning and definition to things, creating. And then it says that God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, but that they could create themselves. That Adam and Eve could then procreate and create more people. And so there's this co-creative process that the creator of all things shares his creative intent and even creative power, to a lesser degree, obviously, with one of his creatures. And then, of course, how many of you guys have ever heard that men have one less rib than women because of, of this passage, right? Okay, there's no such nonsense here, okay? There's equal amounts of ribs in humans. But it's a poetic way. It's a linguistic, stylistic way for something to be communicated. What is that? That woman, that Eve, was fundamentally different than all the rest of creation, just like Adam was. And that Adam and Eve were co-creators together. Many would see a passage like this and the creative intent to undermine patriarchalism, 
but that's another lesson for another time. For now, what we're going to focus on is the creative intent for gender and sexuality. It seems pretty plain that the biblical worldview, the scriptural narrative is that God creates gender and sexuality, that they are a part of his creative intent. And so again, from this framework, the creator is able to determine and define what he creates. Now, where does the story go right after this? What happens right after this part of the story in Genesis 1 and 2? What happens in Genesis 3? How would you depict it? Say it in your own words. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. So Satan deceives Eve. Uh Uh-huh. Adam and Eve get the boot. They got evicted. That's right. First three chapters of the Bible are the foundation on which all the rest of the Bible rests. It, It is what paves the way for the entire narrative. And in fact, it is really key for us to understand Jesus and his mission as well. You know, God creates male and female, their distinct identities and realities, and they're divinely appointed and created. But when we try to alter this, when we rebel against God's design and purpose, of course, we're given the freedom and free will to do so. He will let us do that if we want, but it's to our own peril, just like all rebellion toward God is. And this is the narrative of the Bible, that in Genesis 3, man and woman rebel with the aid of deception from this strange serpent and this evil creature that's given no context. It just appears in the story. Cliffhanger. But Adam and Eve choose to rebel. They choose to eat from the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil, which implies what? That Adam and Eve take the opportunity to define good and evil themselves. What refrain do you see over and over in the creation account? God created this and it was what? Good. The writer is saying that God is defining what is good, defining what is not good, that God is the definer of morality itself. And Genesis 3 says, man and woman were like, nope, we're going to define it. We want the knowledge of good and evil. We want to be able to usurp your definitions of good and evil and do it for ourselves. And what happens? They immediately feel shame, which is contrasted by this right here in Genesis 2, which says they were naked and felt no shame, that what God created good was in fact good. That's what the writer's saying. God didn't mess up. Their sexuality was whole and good and complete and shameless. And when man and woman decide to usurp that authority, to take autonomy for themselves, to define good and evil, what's the first thing that happens? They run and hide, and they realize they're naked as though there was something wrong with it. You know, my wife and I got to go to a Christian comedian stand-up show the other week. It was a lot of fun, and he was really funny at various points. But one of the things he talked about was that he was raised as this Christian kid in a homeschooled, very religious environment, and that there was only one thing that he and his siblings were not allowed to watch on TV, one genre of content. What was it? What's that? Delay David and Goliath. What was one genre of media that a Christian religious homeschool kid is not allowed to watch? Just blurt it out. Romance, sex, guys, in case you were wondering how to raise your kids, okay? All right, sex. 
Christian kids can't watch sexy, racy scenes, right? Am I, am, I, am I mistaken on that? Okay, all right, just want to make sure this guy wasn't out here in left field. He said, this is his story. He, that's not how I was raised. He was raised in such a way that he could watch whatever he wanted. They were allowed to watch any kind of violence or gore or action movie. But as soon as somebody started kissing, uh-uh, mama's coming in, turning the TV, get out of here, you know? And he said, it was a tricky way to grow up. And I think this is so true, right? Especially for us in the Christian religious realm. Sexuality in our culture is something that is extremely taboo and extremely um, elevated in a religious sense, almost from all other sins, right? And I think that a lot of that is culturally induced. As you go to other cultures and other parts of the world, you know, their sins are a little different and what they're more sensitive to, right? You go to France and they're not too worried about sex, but they're not gonna watch somebody getting killed at point blank range. We have no problem with that. So the sins that we're more sensitive to or emphasize is somewhat culturally determined, right? But for us, I think sexuality has an in particularly sensitive thing about it in the church realm. How many of you guys have ever seen someone be expelled or kicked out of a church or excommunicated for some sort of sexual sin? Okay. How many of you guys have ever seen it because someone was greedy? Okay. How, come have, how many of you have ever seen it because someone was, uh, you know, um, divisive? One person. Okay. You notice the hands that go up? They're not proportionate. But yet, as you read the scriptures, they're all they're all there, told to be dealt with the same way in the community of believers. I think that something like that can help expose some of the sensitivities and dispositions that we have towards certain topics like sexuality. We tend to elevate sexual sins more than most others in the American Christian world. But the Bible says that Adam and Eve were naked and yet they felt no shame, meaning their sexuality was not marred by the sin and rebellion that would come one page later. Why? Because God created sex and sexuality and sexual desire, and he created it good. And when we obey him, we can experience some of this goodness that he created, even though we still now live in a fallen state. And if you have ever tried to live the biblical sexual ethic with a devotion and a submission to God, you will see the goodness of God's creation just like in every other area and realm of our lives. So now let's jump way over to the other side of the Bible in Mark chapter 10. So we started with creative intent, which is to set up now Jesus and how he understood these concepts of sexuality and gender. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him as was his custom, and he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There's an interesting question. What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Let that sink in for a moment. For some of you Bible readers out there, Jesus just claimed greater authority than Moses. He just explained why Moses did what he did. That would have been 
really provocative and controversial. He says, but before Moses, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus actually picks up on this very verse that we just read in Genesis to tie it to divorce. Now, I'm not going to go into divorce. That'll be next week. But here, Jesus talks about and affirms the idea that the creator God creates gender and sexuality as binary. Male and female, he created them. And so the teaching in Genesis 1, 27 is affirmed here by Jesus in his teaching about marriage, which we're going to talk more about marriage and singleness and divorce next week. I'm just jumping off of cliffs every week. So if you guys just want to see somebody go splat, just keep coming. He says that gender is in fact binary and sexuality is defined by God, or at least it's supposed to be. That's the creative intent. And that's why he says at the beginning of creation, God did this. That was his intention. And so in a biblical worldview, obviously, because of the corruption and marring of sin in the world and in our own hearts and our own rebellion towards this creator and how he has defined what is good, because of this corruption, because of this sin, because of this fallenness, and even in rare cases because of intersex conditions, we find that sexuality and gender is not binary now in this world. But God's original design and creative intent before the fall is that it would be. And so we all struggle through life in various ways. And some ways we struggle very similarly through life. And unfortunately, though culture and society have tried to become more and more accepting and embracing and affirming of what now we call the LGBT lifestyle and community, suicide rates are still skyrocketing among youth who identify with this community. Interestingly, even more so than their counterparts of previous generations. Meaning that those who identified with the LGBT community in the 50s and 60s, their suicide rates were lower than those are now. In a society that has become more and more accepting, embracing, and affirming and supportive of this community, which is the exact opposite that you would expect the effect to have, right? There's something interesting there. And I believe that the Bible offers us a worldview and a framework in which to understand that kind of conflicting data because we are in rebellion to creative intent. Gender dysphoria is real. Same-sex attractions are real. Sexual sins of all stripes are real and something that all of us deal with. We live in a culture that tries to get us more and more to identify ourselves by those things. However, humanity's attempt to willfully choose gender identities, for instance, that are against the creator's intent is sin and rebellion. It is a repeat of the Genesis 3 narrative that we want to define good and evil. 
And when we choose to embrace and identify with such things as transgenderism, non-binary or genderqueer or other sexual or gender identities, we're not trusting or believing in the creator's intent. Instead, we're trusting and believing in ourselves and our own emotions and feelings. And guess what? The exact same thing happens with all heterosexual sin and immorality as well. And I think this is one of the things that's so difficult, is that for so long, for about the last half century or so, since the, since the, the gay pride movement, essentially, in the 1950s, the church, the Christian Church of America, have been very outspoken, in some ways, I believe, very non-representative of Jesus about the sinfulness and fallenness of this community. All the while being counterattacked by the idea that there's a giant fat plank in the church's eye, which in many cases is actually true because a gay person might be yelled at by a Christian for being gay and told that they're going to hell all the while the Christian doing the yelling is heterosexually immoral and adulterous. And so there is a very real opportunity for the hypocrisy to be labeled on Christians, which Jesus had much to say about. And over time, these two communities of Christians and those in the LGBTQ community and those that identify and support that community, there's this giant wedge. And I, I wanna ask you to take personal inventory of your heart about that. Are you actually displaying and representing the love of Jesus with those that you disagree with, with those that choose to live life and make choices in different ways than you? Are you still willing to be loving? Ah, but what does it mean to be loving, John? Indeed. I'm not going to breach any political issues. I'm not gonna posit any political or societal solutions for I believe that the creator's intent can be the only thing or the creator's intent can only be restored by the creator. So I don't think any systems of man can sort all this out. And if you've heard me talk about this subject before, you know that I'm apolitical. I tend not to have much faith or trust in any human system or organization to bring about the healing that humanity so desperately needs. I believe that can only happen ultimately through Jesus and the power of his spirit. However, as Christians, we are called to love all people in a way that is full of grace and truth, just like Jesus. Let's look over to John chapter one. So obviously this is a, a big topic, a sensitive one, and I'm doing a high 30,000 foot flyover. Main points, God's creative intent from a biblical worldview is very clear. He creates gender, he creates sexuality, he calls it good, he defines it. Jesus affirms that position when he walked the earth. Now, what does it mean for us as Christians who embrace and submit to the biblical worldview of the creator's intent, that we submit to the creator and embrace that gender is in fact binary, that sexuality is in fact defined by God and that we are to submit ourselves to his sexual ethic? Does anybody know what the opposite of sexual immorality is? It's sexual morality. You wanna know where you can find sexual Morality, go back to the creator's intent who defines what's moral. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2. He created one man 
and one woman to be in union and one flesh together. He says that's sexual morality. Anything beyond or outside of that is sexually immoral. Why? Because it's against the definer of morality. When we define what's moral, we get to do whatever we want. I don't know about you, but it doesn't go too well for me when I try to do that. I wind up in a world full of pain and hurt, and I wind other people up in worlds full of pain and hurt. And so the Genesis 3 narrative continues. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, what would it mean for us to love like Jesus? Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him being Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. John says that Jesus came differently than the law of Moses, that he came with grace and truth, that he gave grace in place of grace already given. And so as we think about the creator and his intent in the first pages of the Bible, I want us to remember and really try to get in touch with the grace in place of grace that has been shown to each and every one of us. This is what the communion was all about. This is what Jacob was reminding us about. The grace on top of grace that has been showed to each and every one of us. The only way that we can love other people in grace and truth like Jesus is that we take planks out of our own eyes and that we recognize that we are as absolutely in need of grace as much as any other human that has or ever will live, including those in the LGBTQ community. It is only when we see ourselves as self-righteous or somehow inherently better than that we are unable now to love like Jesus. Each one of us, if we're willing, we can point to moments, circumstances, situations, people where we have been shown incredible grace. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is wanting everyone to turn from their sin and to return back to him a place of grace and truth. And so when we try to love like Jesus, which is full of grace and truth, I believe that it's appropriate in the topics of gender and sexuality in our current cultural context. I personally believe that in order for us to love full of grace and truth, it is appropriate to call non-Christians by whatever name or pronoun that they desire out of respect for their wishes as a human being. But that we do this not from the motive of capitulating to the cultural tides around us. We don't just do this because it's politically correct, but rather out of a deep and genuine love for every person that springs forth from God's love for us. That we are willing to love other people, not the way the world tells us to love them, but to love them in a way that God loves us. And that motivates us 
to love like Jesus, full of grace and truth. But to love full of grace and truth, I also believe that we should not be calling someone who claims to be a Christian by whatever name and pronoun and gender they decide. Because as a Christian, they are voluntarily, through faith, submitting to the Creator's intent. And that we should lovingly and gently call them to submit themselves to their Creator's design and intent for their lives, sexuality, and gender. For this is what it means to be a disciple, to submit to Jesus and his teachings over our own feelings, emotions, will, or those of others around us. To love like Jesus, full of grace and truth, means that we would lovingly call everyone to repent and turn from their own definitions of good and evil, even each other. No matter what shape or form those evils might take, whether they be heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, asexual, or anything else in between, and instead embrace the loving intent of Creator God, for He and He alone knows what is truly good. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that we would submit ourselves to him, submit ourselves to his definitions of good for us and everyone else, that we would deny our flesh, deny our passions, deny our emotions and our feelings to the will of God, trusting his will is for our good and better than our will. Because we surrender to the truth that he's creator. Any creative power that we have has been shared with us from the creator and that we willingly do not usurp his authority because he graciously gives us the ability to do so. He gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. He could have not allowed that, right? But he endows us with his image to have free will, to be co-creators like him, and thus be able to choose evil. I know, it's quagmire, it blows your brain. I also, like you, wish he wouldn't have done that sometimes. God, just make me love you like a robot. That would be a lot easier sometimes. This is what it means to be a disciple when it comes to gender and sexuality. Of course, this is not easy to do. Of course, this is extremely controversial in our cultural context. This perhaps makes the road that leads to eternal life more narrow than ever before, if there was even such a possibility. But we must love full of grace and truth with each other and with the world around us. Let's pray for God's direction as we try to love full of grace and truth.